It's Thursday, March 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The World Health Organization has now declared the COVID-19 crisis a pandemic, with Iran and Italy as the new front lines in the battle against the virus. Italy has over 12,000 cases and over 800 deaths, leading the government to put the entire country on lockdown, limiting the movement of 60 million people. Chico Harlan, Rome bureau chief at the Washington Post, joins us for what Italy is like post-lockdown. Next, after Super Tuesday Part 2, Joe Biden has extended his lead to claim the Democratic nomination for president. But you can't count out Bernie Sanders just yet. Despite calls for him to get out of the race, Sanders has said he will continue his campaign and participate in a one-on-one debate with Biden on Sunday. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico, joins us for the continued fight for the Democratic nomination. Finally, the spread of COVID-19 continues to affect all aspects of everyday life, and the sports world is no different. March Madness will play with no fans. The Golden State Warriors will also play a game in an empty arena. But what about Major League Baseball? Opening day is two weeks away, and while they would like to use alternate sites for games, it seems like they too might play with no fans in attendance. Jared Diamond, national baseball writer at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This is a country that depends on tourism for 13% of its GDP. Tourism is zero now. Nobody is here. Right. And then, of course, shops are closed at night. There's not a restaurant open in Italy tonight. Joining us now is Chico Harlan, Rome Bureau Chief at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Chico. Absolutely. No problem. So the latest update, the WHO, the World Health Organization, has declared the global coronavirus crisis. They've called it now a pandemic, which really just means that this virus is causing sustained outbreaks in multiple regions in the world. One of the things that they've said is that Iran and Italy are the new front lines in the battle against the virus that started in China and specifically in Italy there's a lockdown of the entire country. At first, it was just going to be the northern region. Then they decided to lock down the entire country. And this is something pretty historic. It's never been done. There's 60 million people there. And these just proves the steps that they're going through to try to contain the outbreak of the COVID-19 coronavirus. Chico, you're based there in Italy, in Rome. Tell us what it's like. Well, totally surreal. When you're on the streets now in Rome, you don't really see people. Some, but they now abide by these completely once alien customs, keeping their distance from one another, eyeing others suspiciously. Some are wearing masks, some aren't. Some wrap scarves around their mouths. But I was only briefly out today shopping for groceries and the line forms with everyone keeping a meter or two distance from one another. And, you know, the minute you get home, you wash your hands for somewhere between 20 to 40 seconds and you try not to touch your face. These are the things that every Italian is doing now. And of course, normal life has stopped. School, theater, museums, nothing is open. There's very little reason to go outside other than just to see the beauty of Rome, which still is there. You can't ever shut that down. But these are customs that Italians have eternalized, I'd say, very quickly in just a matter of days as the number of cases has gone up and up and up. And I kind of as society in a very rapid amount of time went through all the stages of grief and acceptance that allowed these measures to be taken without much blowback at all. Now people are saying, okay, it's necessary. And I think other countries will get there too, maybe not to a lockdown, but to some dramatic 
ways in which life changes. Right. The numbers are constantly changing, but we have over 12,000 confirmed cases there in Italy, more than 800 deaths. The numbers just keep rising all the time. What does the official lockdown consist of? I know they're placing restrictions on travel in and out of the country and all, but what else are the restrictions, the official restrictions that are happening there? You're not supposed to move outside of the country or from one area to the other within the country unless you have special permission. So for reasons of work that are urgent, necessary for reasons of health or other emergencies, then you need to have this police form, a signed declaration with you, and, and you're liable to be checked. And I do think enforcement, though it's impossible to patrol every single border, it's been enough to reduce dramatically the number of people that are even leaving their neighborhood. And I think that's the goal. It's kind of to atomize society and turn 60 million people into a nation of home dwellers. And it takes society to get pretty spooked before people will do that. I mean, really, though it's a government order, it's also a matter of self-compliance. And I think pretty much down to the person, that's what's happening now. The last two or three days, Italy has felt shut down indeed. In the United States, Washington State's governor just announced a ban on gatherings of more than 250 people, concerts and music festivals. Things are being shut down. So in the United States, we're kind of getting there. We're getting to that point where they're starting to shut down things. And obviously, they're telling people not to be in large gatherings. But for a city like Rome and the country overall in Italy, there's tons of tourism there. People go there to be out and about and experience the culture and that's rapidly changing, as you've been saying. What happens to the business owners? Because if everything's shut down, there's very limited people in a cafe or so. And even then, they're still sitting a meter apart or something. What of the business owners there? They're totally screwed. Surely there'll be some government attempts at relief and bailout, but Italy will be in a deep recession. And Italy was in a bad economic shape even before this hit, but it could be one of the ugliest chapters of post-war Italian history just from an economic standpoint. And it, of course, there are variables about how long this carries on for, but this is a country that depends on tourism for 13% of its GDP. Tourism is zero now. Nobody is here. Right. And then, of course, shops are closed at night. There's not a restaurant open in Italy tonight. That was one of the interesting things I noted from your piece is that they said that restaurants and bars should be closing by 6 p.m. And for anybody that's been to Italy or knows about it, they eat pretty late. They don't really start getting out until 9 o'clock no, or something. No one's, no one's going to dinner now. That's basically what it means. Wow. You can go out for lunch. And there's some talk even that restrictions might further tighten such that the only things that are open are pharmacies and grocery stores. That remains to be seen. But some politicians from the north are saying that even the existing restrictions are too lax. This is pretty far gone, obviously, there in Italy. But do we know where the first case started, how it really originated there? Was it somebody traveling back from China? They still don't have a definitive answer, but it looks more complicated than that. There's some speculation that it could have come from Germany. There was a miniature outbreak in January. Then maybe there was some contact there. But by and large, the hunt for patient zero has been unfulfilling and almost at this point feels besides the point. Because by the time Italy woke up to this, it had clearly been brewing for about three weeks, maybe, well, let's just say some weeks. And then they started looking for cases and they found cases everywhere. So that didn't happen overnight. Chico, thank you very much. Rome Bureau Chief at The Washington Post. Thank you. On Sunday night in the first 
one-on-one -on -one debate of this campaign, the American people will have the opportunity to see which candidate is best positioned to accomplish that goal. Joining us now is David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, David. Hey, good to be here. So we had another round of primaries for the Democrats seeking the nomination. It was really just a two-way race between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And once again, Joe Biden came out on top. We're still awaiting some other results, but he was pretty much the clear winner again. As of now, the delegate count stands at 860 for Joe Biden, 710 for Bernie Sanders. That could change a little bit here and there. But then what came next was kind of interesting. Joe Biden spoke at the end of the night. He kind of pivoted to a general election stance. Bernie Sanders was nowhere to be found until the following day where he came out in front of his home and basically said he's still staying in the race, even though the pathway to the nomination has been made a lot more difficult. But he said he's staying in. He's going to go to the debate on Sunday and challenge Joe Biden there to see who has the clear vision for the Democratic Party. David, what do we know about all this? I think that in every way except for mathematically, Biden is going to be the nominee. And barring some unforeseen event, which could happen, something could happen at the debate, things happen in campaigns. But as it stands right now, the road for Bernie Sanders is almost impossible. It wasn't just that he lost yesterday. He lost in Michigan, which was key to his whole electability argument with white working class voters. Washington, where he won by more than 40 percentage points in 2016. That race was neck and neck. So it was just a disaster for him with even harsher primaries looming. The Florida election next week is not going to be kind to Bernie Sanders. Georgia the week after that, same thing. So I think what we saw last night was a reset to almost what we had in 2016, where Bernie Sanders is now, for the most part, a movement candidate. And Biden is the moderate who is on the cusp of being the presumptive nominee. And that's why the debate, I think, is important to Sanders. You know, electorally, it may matter if Biden embarrasses himself at the debate or you know, something significant like that happens. More likely, it's an opportunity for Sanders to air the movement concerns that he wants to air. Do either Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders have a chance at making the delegate count that they need to clinch the nomination? So let's just say Bernie Sanders doesn't get out of the race and they just kind of keep going at this all the way to the conventions. Neither of them will make the number of delegates that they need, right? Biden has a chance to make the delegate number that he needs. It's Bernie who almost certainly doesn't. Sanders could mathematically catch it, but he would need to win more than 55 percent of delegates now going forward. And to do that in a proportional election is impossible. Yes, yeah, so almost impossible. So the debate is going to be very important for Joe Biden. His debate performances across this whole process have been a little uneven, let's say. There's times where he's done really well. There's times where he's kind of not really been present or something. So this will be important for Bernie Sanders, who is very consistent on the debate stage, at least. But even in his remarks in front of his home, you know, he said, let me be very frank as to all the questions I'm going to be asking Joe. You know, he throughout things, uh, you know, he's going to ask him about climate change, college affordability, criminal justice, all the things that Bernie Sanders constantly talks about. So it's going to be interesting to see how he attacks him in that way. And from what I've been reading, a lot of people are saying it's got to be somewhat delicate. You know, if he bruises Joe Biden so badly, that's just going to make him look worse in a general election if that is what eventually happens. 
I'd expect a tough debate by Bernie. That's been a hallmark. I think he's pretty good at it. This is his first chance to have a head-to-head with Biden. And like you said, Biden has not always been great. But there's two things, I think, to keep in mind. One is that Biden has been better the last week or so. Coming from a position of strength, I think, suits him. And Sanders will be coming to the debate from a position of weakness. And the other thing to watch, I think, in Sanders' remarks at the press conference in Burlington, what you saw there was a discussion about ideas, but I think significant to where we are in the race, he was not tearing down Joe Biden. You didn't see a nasty attack on Biden. In fact, he gave a pretty frank assessment of where the campaign is electorally, uh, you know, acknowledging that he's behind. And I think that if you're one of these people who is looking for unity going ahead to November, seeing Joe Biden on Tuesday night reaching out directly to Sanders supporters and then seeing Sanders the next day not undercutting Biden as a person, that was pretty significant. And I think if Sanders has his way, this will be a fierce, robust kind of debate on Sunday, but it'll be one about ideas. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. These events that are prohibited are gatherings for social, recreational, spiritual, and other matters, including but not limited to community, civic, public, leisure, faith-based, or sporting events. Joining us now is Jared Diamond, national baseball writer at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jared. Yeah, thanks for having me. The situation with coronavirus, COVID-19, is moving very fast across the United States. And we want to take a look into how it's impacting the sports world overseas. We've already seen a bunch of soccer games and other sports being played in empty stadiums without any fans. That seems to be what's going to start happening now here in the United States. I think San Francisco and Washington have put bans on large gatherings of people. So the Golden State Warriors are going to have to do a basketball game with no fans in attendance. There's a lot of stuff happening, but... Major League Baseball has not really decided exactly what it's going to be doing yet. Opening day is March 26th, so it's about two weeks away, and they're trying to find some contingency plans on what to do. They want to try to take each game on a case-by-case basis. Jared, tell us what they're working on. Baseball's hope and goal throughout all of this was if they had to do something, their first choice was alternate sites for games as opposed to the empty stadium approach, which we're now seeing in San Francisco, in Columbus, Ohio, which we're likely to see in other places as well moving forward. But the reality is, even since a day or two ago, the possibility of actually doing these games in alternate sites is becoming less and less likely. More and more local governments are stepping in and saying that you can't have mass gatherings. At the end of the day, it's very hard to envision a scenario where any sport is played in front of fans for the foreseeable future. So ultimately, I don't think this is going to be baseball's decision. These decisions are being made for them by these governmental entities. It seems like one after the other is now coming out saying no mass gatherings in this city or this state. Roughly 80% of MLB stadiums are owned by governmental agencies. So if a local government there says something, they're really going to not have any say there. They don't have any say in Seattle right now where they're already have made it clear they're not going to be able to play in front of fans in Seattle, at least for the beginning of this season. We've seen orders come down in Ohio, 
as well that so far only pertain to indoor events, but could very easily sort of expand outwards from there. Baseball says we want to find alternate sites. Well, where are these alternate sites, right? If every single state has rules against large gatherings with fans there, they're not going to be any alternate sites for baseball or any sport to play, which is why it just feels like we're getting to the place where we're going to have to just either not play at all, which is obviously the last last resort, or play in front of empty stadiums. Yeah, I know LeBron James had said he would not want to play if there were no fans there. I know he hasn't necessarily walked anything back, but he's kind of quieted down about that. But it would just totally upend all these sports if they were not to play. I mean, they basically cancel the season at that point, I guess. It just seems like it's more trouble to not play than just to go without the fans for a few months. Hopefully just a few months. Who knows how long these bands would last. There's no playbook for this because this has never happened before. But I will say, I think that the leagues rightfully are going to do everything in their power to play the games. And then I don't mean to sound sentimental when I say this, but the reality is we're moving toward a scenario where large swaths of the country are going to be sitting at home for potentially weeks at a time. That's just where this is going. It'd be, it would be naive at this point to think otherwise. And I think it'd be really meaningful to people to have these games on TV when they're sitting at home going stir crazy. And I hope that the leagues, and I think they do, recognize that and understand that even if there are no fans in the building, there's real value to trying to get these games in to the extent possible. And we hope we don't get to the point where playing the games becomes impossible. But if the alternative is playing in front of empty arenas, empty stadiums, if that's something that we agree is, could work, I think that would be a really good option that would really make a lot of people happy in what is a really difficult time. Spring training is going on right now in Arizona and Florida. Things haven't really slowed down there. I mean, they're still holding games. Attendance levels, I think, are kind of at the same as they have been before. So it hasn't slowed down as of yet. As of now, spring training has been business as usual for the most part. The players seem to be, by and large, blissfully unaware that there's a global emergency going on outside their doors. Pro athletes have this incredible way of like being in the zone and blocking out everything else besides sort of what they have to do. And that's where baseball players are right now. I don't think many of them have quite come to grips with the fact that their lives and jobs are about to fundamentally change. But they'll get there because, as I've been saying, I really believe that we're very close to every league, baseball, basketball, hockey, saying probably collectively we're going to have no fans at games for the foreseeable future. I just at this moment as I sit here today, I don't see any alternative. I don't see how that isn't the end result of this, just the way things are going. Do you think MLB makes the call a lot sooner than later? We only have two weeks until opening day. So when do you think they'll start making the calls? I think it's going to be an announcement put out by the NBA and NHL and baseball altogether. All the leagues and Major League Soccer got together and put out a statement a couple of days ago saying they were closing their locker rooms to media and other sort of non-essential personnel. That was a joint statement that was made collectively with those four leagues. I would not be surprised if we see the same sort of thing here. Jared Diamond, national baseball writer at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Stay safe out there. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.